Hello, welcome to the show. I'm, when you're watching this, probably in a festival in, in Germany, um, having a midlife crisis. So what I decided to do before I go is have a chat with these two brilliant younger authors than me. I was going to say young authors, they're young. Uh, Matthew Lawrence and Adrienne Butler. I'll just take it, Matthew. Jeez, honestly, take it. You're younger than 38. Just yes. This is true, yeah, for a while. So yeah. let's just savour that, shall we? It won't last. Um, you've got this book called Owning the Future, a brilliant new book, uh, Power and Prosperity in an Age of Crisis. I wish I'd actually got the cover just to flash up because it's got Adrian Butler like that. And then Matthew Lawrence is kind of on its side. <laughs> You've been tipped over. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any significance of that. Oh, yeah. It's, I, I've sort of, yeah. It's like, you know, there's whales that sleep vertically. Yeah. Uh, you know this? Whales sleep vertically. Like, so yeah. that's, kind of, that's what the vibe I wanted to embody. Ironically, given Adrian's book, Valuable Whale, look at this crossover. Look at well, that. I think you like. You should have done. You should have done a red circle around the T because Matthew, in this case, is only spelt with one T, and I would imagine your life is generally ruined by people putting two T's in your name. Yeah, although it's quite a good way of, like, you know, a tip for anyone who randomly wants to email me. But it's quite a good way of kind of uh, noticing who pays attention to what they're actually writing, rather than just like the sort of if someone is like, "Dear Matt," with two T's, I'm like. <laughs> I mean, it is a nightmare looking you up on Twitter because of you're called Danton's head. Where Adrian Buller's, you've got your name there. Yeah, we're getting. I'm getting bogged down here. I think in a bit of a, <laughs> in a side issue. So this is a self-described radical manifesto for the transformation of post-pandemic politics. If people forgot, we had a pandemic. It wasn't fun. Um, who is? Let's talk about. I like a main character in a book. You know, the protagonist, who we. Uh, who we focus on, or the antagonist. Um, when you, yeah, you talk about the corporation, which you call the engine of extraction. What are you talk, What's going on? What are you talking about? Adrienne. Yeah, um, so we kind of focus, as you said, on the corporation and the corporate form, I guess, as the main character of the book, because it is that particular kind of ownership structure is kind of at the heart of a lot of the problems that we identify and focus on, whether that's kind of, financial extraction from major companies or it's kind of enclosure of, you know, vaccine IP in the pandemic or whether it's, you know, an energy bills crisis based around private corporations. And so we look specifically at the corporate form and the specific kind of legal huge privileges and kind of protections and rights um, that are specific to that kind of form that enable it to be one, like such a huge coordinating force in the global economy and two, so kind of incredibly efficient in the way it's currently owned and run at kind of extracting wealth from workers, those who kind of create it and kind of funneling it out to, to shareholders. And there are loads of kind of legal frameworks and systems that support that, whether that's, you know, the fact that the corporate form is actually like a specific legal person. So, you know, shareholders don't technically own the productive assets or the means of production within a corporation, you know, they just own an entitlement to future income, which means that they're also kind of shielded from, you know, if a corporation collapses, you know, they there's limited liability protections that mean, you know, they only lose the value of their shareholding. They're not liable for kind of any unpaid debts or for, you know, taking care of workers who might be left behind after a company collapses. And so there's all these kind of frameworks that enable it to be incredibly efficient at not only producing, but also at kind of 
funneling wealth out to sort of a narrow group of people. Uh, and just add, just add on that, I mean, every every character needs sort of like an origin story. And if you think of the sort of corporation, you know, the most uh, the earliest corporations, the East India Company, for example, were sort of born explicitly as agents of colonial dispossession, of sort of violent extraction of wealth from other people and other places. And really, in some ways, sort of the corporation, which is a social institution, which, you know, its rights are derived from politics, from, you know, legal structures that we ultimately should have control over. This, you know, this corporation bears the imprint of its origin. So it is really in its governance, in how it extracts and concentrates wealth. It's really sort of an institution of oligarchy, of, you know, rule by the few, for the few. And that sort of way it sort of translates labour and nature, as Adrian was saying, and coordinates on a vast scale, sort of, you know, sort of multinational corporations so sort of it creates value but then it extracts it away from those who actually produce value sort of ordinary working people um sort of you know, sort of whether waged or unwaged work and extracts it up and out to a sort of much narrower class you know the ownership class and i think there's some complications in that because i think with pensions etc which we can maybe go into more and more people are entangled in that but the reality is that the deep inequalities of ownership I mean, the, the corporation is kind of a sort of fulcrum for translating the world as it is through work into wealth for a few. So we will talk about pensions because that people that just comes up a lot and it's important. Well, yeah, I'm, old, you know, it's you know, got a golden oldie. That's relevant, actually. Um, I I'm going to defend the corporation. Actually, uh, I'm well known for defending corporate the corporate world. No, I mean when I go on um, like a TV or radio show and I talk like at the moment vast profits be made look at what's happening to ordinary people i was on with this guy from uh, a right-wing think tank i'm not going to bother to name but you know his argument would always be well corporations have a fiduciary duty to make profit and you know it's, they're actually legally compelled that's the whole purpose and you know to be demonized for a legal fiduciary duty um is is, is pointless that's the legal framework compelling them to behave in this way yeah, I mean, so uh, exactly. I mean, kind of sort of he, he sort of provides the rope which hangs his own argument because exactly that. So, yeah, I mean, someone's yes. And therefore, if we recognize that they are coded, you know, the law codes the operation of the corporation, it sort of structures who is privileged in the ordering of where the sort of revenues and incomes and sort of cash flows it generates, who has a claim on that, as Adrian was saying, sort of shelves the sort of top of that. And so, sort of, you know, that's the ownership class here. It, we can recode the corporation. So, in some ways, our argument is not the corporation is inherently evil. It's in fact, in some ways, extraordinarily successful and useful as a sort of social and political institution for coordinating production, for organizing, you know, interactions of labor and capital, for organizing how we sort of make the world around us. But currently our politics and the legal institutions that frame the corporation and give it its privileges that enable it to sort of organize production Currently, they are organized in a way that really sort of benefit a very narrow class of people. And so there's a response to the sort of unknown, um, you know, sort of <laughs> what we think tank would be like, yes, you're absolutely right. And those fiduciary duties are not kind of pre-social. They don't like originate in the market. They are derived from political law, from political institutions. And therefore, we can change and reimagine the corporation so that it's inclusive, not extractive. It's democratic rather than oligarchic. And it operates within planetary boundaries rather than being sort of agents of, you know, sort of annihilation of nature and, and the climate. Yeah. And I should add that, you know, this it's an argument we make in the book about how you could potentially kind of re reclaim the coordinating power of 
corporations, but it's not particularly new as an insight. So, you know, Marx was the first to kind of identify within the corporate form as it kind of began to grow in his time. You know, I think he described it as like the abolition of the capitalist mode of production within the capitalist mode of production itself, which basically is just that, you know, the specific nature of the corporation meant that it kind of could potentially kind of begin to eat the capitalist mode of production itself insofar as you know you have this legal separation of ownership of the means of production which we said you know the corporate body owns it and not the capitalist kind of enterprise man himself and not the shareholders and additionally you have this kind of extremely effective kind of socialization of production and of planning and coordination within the corporation itself. So there are these kind of seeds, this kind of like embryonic potential for those two dynamics to be kind of seized in a way that could make the corporation oriented around, you know, coordinating production to meet social needs, environmental needs, um, rather than just, as Matt said, the kind of fiduciary duty that is something that is not like the natural outcome of mm. the corporation, but rather one that is kind of legally imposed and serves a very specific set of interests. Before Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Come on, so like, why are we getting rid of these things? Um, yeah, I'm quite interested in that whole kind of, you know, one of the a critique of capitalism would be its short-termism. Um, and kind of what you're talking about here is actually, if you look at the corporation you actually do get planning at scale. You get planning actually, which crosses national boundaries. Um, I mean, so, so in a sense you could see, is there kind of a potential argument that a new economic system could be seen as being born within a structure, which obviously at the moment is undemocratic, it's weighted in certain interests, but you can see, for example, when we talk about planning, which has become very demonized because it's very much ex associated with the Soviet experiment of a bureaucratic, centralized form of planning. But you do get planning at scale within capitalism, and that's only within the corporation. Yes, I think there's two things. I think it's, it's definitely true that you know, all economies involve coordination and involve planning. And within capitalism, you know, the right to plan and therefore to determine the future is accorded to the controllers of investment, investment flows, and in whose interest those you know, investments are made. And that again, sort of flows back to, you know, who holds wealth and assets uh, in society. So I think there's a sort of question of time, temporality and sort of ownership and sort of who is privileged in making the future. You know, most of you know, most of us, we don't, we can't, we don't know what products are being developed by Amazon. We don't know what's being developed by you know, XYZ Corporation through their investment plans. And so we kind of see the future to a very sort of narrow set of actors. So I think there's a question like, can we have sort of socialize time? Um, you know, a bit like that Mellenshaw line earlier in the year about a sort of uh, nationalizing time. But can we socialize time in terms of controlling through new ways of controlling flows of investment and decision making within the corporation? Who gets to decide? Um, and then I think I think the other thing is not just about sort of short terms, and I think that is definitely true and sort of harmful. But I think in a more basic sense, I think you know, and this is where ownership is fundamental as a sort of organizing force for 
concentrating and extracting wealth is that you know the the corporation as currently organized it's not just short termists but it's essentially a way for expropriating the wealth of the producing class the massive working people who enter into work on a notionally sort of you know legally equal uh, employment contracts sort of notionally equal sort of uh, free exchange between the employer and the employee but of course that generates surplus value which is extracted out and flows towards uh, you know, owners of capital and so so the corporation is currently organized is this vast sucking force of wealth and you know, wealth and power upwards and outwards away from those who actually create it um, so i think you'd want to think about not just time and planning but also sort of value how we create it how we measure it, and how we distribute it yeah. And the fact that I guess right now the kind of major governing force within the corporation is ultimately like the disciplining force of financial markets. Right. So you are kind of even though corporations themselves will publish, you know, fossil fuel companies are a really good example of this. They'll publish plans for investment and, you know, new fossil fuel exploration or whatever, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. But ultimately, you know, those are projections that can't be realized unless they are compliant with the kind of much nearer term. Uh, demands and discipline of shareholders. And because, you know, the metrics for remaining a shareholder in a company are, you know, earnings per share, which is improved by share buybacks, or, you know, keeping shareholders happy through dividends, um, you know, that is the force of discipline rather than, frankly, actual performance in terms of, you know, what you're producing, or really your profitability. I mean, you can see massive corporate valuations for companies that you know, have never even turned a profit. And it's because, you know, it's less about what you're actually producing and, and doing a lot of time and more about, you know, how you are rewarding uh, shareholders and, you know, the financial market. I suppose a lot of people on the left might be a bit surprised by some of your arguments just in that, you know, the corporate world is probably as demonic a kind of area as any within the capitalist system, which people on the left are hardwired to confront, oppose, and overcome. So a lot of people would think, well, actually, the corporate world is just an innate, inherent evil that needs to be abolished in favor of something else. So why not? Why aren't you making an argument? No, the dog's, well, the dog's making the argument yeah, in the background. The dog, yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, so, I mean, so, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, briefly, um, sorry, I don't know if you're Adrian, but so, I, mean, I think... I mean, I think it's important to step back. So the corporation is simply an institution, an institutional form that is endowed with certain rights and privileges. The corporate world is a set of social relations dominated by hierarchy that's gendered, that's racialized. And so I think the corporation as a sort of legal form and as a political form is currently laced through with the types of um, you know, relations of, expropriate, of exploitation, expropriation, domination, that of course, anyone on the left has to stand fully against. Um, but that is, and, and those things you know, they manifest in the corporate world as we know it. But the corporation as a way of, you know, collective endeavor, a way of organizing sort of the coming together of labor and capital can be, you know, and as Adrian pointed out, you know, as Marx pointed out, there's embryonic potential in that sort of socialization of production, socialization of, you know, coordination with the, the company within, within sort of the corporate form. It can actually birth something quite different. That would require, the, you know, of course, extraordinary changes in who is privileged within the corporation, you know, the discipline, you know, re relieving the corporation from the discipline force of capital markets that Adrian was explaining, you know, transforming governance, you know, socializing ownership. There's a whole host of things you need to do. But so I think it's important to separate the need to coordinate and reimagine production 
from the corporate world, which, yeah, obviously, yes, the sort of how it currently is organized is, you know, something that the left shouldn't be in favor of in any way. But, you know, the actual institutions, I think, are should be a site of political reimagination. Adrienne, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I guess, yeah, quick problem would be, again, this comes down to the question of ownership within the corporate form itself, right? So corporate body might own the means of production, but right now we have this governing force that is monopolized by shareholders, which are overwhelmingly, you know, very large asset management firms who probably, you know, based on the nature of their business, don't actually have a particular interest in what any given in like if given corporation within their portfolio is doing, right? So the top asset managers around the world today, people like BlackRock or Vanguard, what they do is they buy up financial assets on behalf of others, whether that's, you know, a pension fund or a rich individual or a university endowment. Um, and they're so vast, you know, BlackRock manages $10 trillion in assets that they're basically buying up shares and other financial assets across the entire global economy. And they have often, you know, effective veto size stakes in major corporations. Um, and ultimately, their business model is based on charging a fee that is a percentage of the value of the assets they manage. That was a lot of information altogether, but cumulatively, cumulatively sorry, I'm, it's a bit early for me. I'm in California right now, so I can't speak very well. Um, but cumulatively, the effect of that is that all they care about is uh, rising kind of asset prices. And when it comes to the corporation, really rising share prices. And so, you know, anything that the corporation can do and that the asset manager can do to ensure that as an outcome um, is what they will do. And fundamentally, that's based around an ownership structure of the corporate form that is unsustainable rather than the kind of coordinating form that Matt was describing itself. Yeah, just talk more about these asset managers, because this is a big shift, a big transformation that's happened. How did that happen? Who are the who are they essentially? Who are these people? Um, and you know, yeah, how did how did they solidify their grip and what does that, you know, what else does that mean in terms of the social and economic consequences? Yeah. Um, so asset managers are, you know, they do what the name kind of says, they manage assets, as I said, on on behalf of others. Um, and basically they'll just take other people's money and invest it across the economy. Um, they kind of really took off in terms of both an explosion in the absolute size of the industry, but also kind of the concentration within it uh, in the wake of the 2008 kind of financial crisis. And in large part, that was driven by something called passive investing. Um, which is basically, you know, we think of uh, investors as kind of, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street type, you know, men in suits kind of fighting it out, trying to you know, seek alpha and beat the market. But today, the top kind of shareholders in almost every corporation will probably be a primarily passive manager, where rather than choosing what to invest specifically, they're tracking kind of indexes or baskets of securities that are kind of predetermined, and just kind of slowly trying to, to track the growth of the stock market as a whole or a specific subset of it, uh, rather than trying to beat it. And over time, it turned out that passive investing, at least in the post-crash conditions, uh, was much more consistent at kind of delivering financial returns than people trying to pursue kind of the Wolf of Wall Street active style. And what that did was create this massive concentration within the asset management industry so that now you have the total global industry is about $100 trillion in assets under management, um, $20 trillion of that. So a full fifth is controlled by just three American asset management companies. So BlackRock, which I mentioned, at $10 trillion, Vanguard at you know another seven, and then State Street. Um, 
together controlling about $20 trillion. And that plays out as the three of those together own on average, you know, 20% of a given S&P 500 company. That's the 500 big kind of US corporates, everything from Exxon to Facebook, Amazon, you name it. Um, they're, you know, growing similarly in the UK in terms of the scale and control that they have. And so we have the system where a handful of enormous firms um, have these controlling governance stakes in pretty much every corporation in the global economy, but also within, you know, commodities, within real estate and all sorts of other assets. Uh, and yeah, I think that's fundamentally changed, you know, sites of power within the economy and hugely concentrated power so that not only corporations, but even increasingly kind of policymakers and governments themselves find themselves sort of beholden to these players who are, you know, systemic in nature and who control, you know, absolutely enormous amounts of kind of capital flows in, in the global economy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So at the moment, we've got, in Britain, if we look at, for example, the debates currently taking place about the privatized water supply, about the energy crisis, and as things stand, Britain faces a humanitarian crisis people simply won't be able to pay over five thousand pounds worth of energy bills it's just a ludicrous proposition to say the least um and obviously and, and it's interesting now because people are talking you know partly because Keir Starmer made a series of pledges and leadership campaign he then abandoned um and some journalists have finally tr tried to actually ask him about it but more generally you are getting some discussion in the mainstream you get this good morning Britain presenters talking about nationalization like it's, it's actually you know we're talking about so what how does this all feed in because people are actually questions of ownership because of the energy crisis but also water i mean leaking pipes because these companies won't invest in um fixing pipes but they will in shareholders dividends. how does this all feed in matthew yeah i mean so i think there's a couple of things i think one i think the way that sort of the external shocks are obviously one of the big sort of pressures on living sector right now is the extraordinary surge um, in the wholesale price of energy but the reality in the energy system is that, that then cost is a push through a system where at every layer there's an extractive layer of money flowing out of the system whether it's to the national grid which has now been carved up to sort of you know distribute distributed network operators which are kind of these companies that kind of connect you in the sort of last mile um, to the grid type um, thing. So people don't really know about them. They've got some of the highest profit margins of any sort of section of the British economy. It's true that, you know, the sort of big, well, big six, now big five, uh, which speaks to the volatility of you know, the market. 
But, uh, you know, it's true that the big five make lower margins, but they've still managed to pay out almost £42 billion of the last decade to their investors. And then, of course, you've got the producers who, you know, the big, the five biggest sort of Western oil and gas um, companies, including BP and Shell, made over $100 billion um, in profit in the last six months, triple what it was a year ago. And almost half of that has already gone straight out the door to its investors, straight out the door, right into the pockets um, of investors and you know, wealthy asset owners. And so, you know, I guess, yes, there's been an external shock, but I think the key point is in a way that the sort of in a financialized asset economy, at every layer, there's a transfer through the mechanism of ownership from ordinary working people to, um, you know, sort of the shareholders and the debt holders of these companies. So whether it's, you know, Thames Water, which, you know, water companies as a whole, which is sort of highly leveraged and sort of, you know, your bills help go to pay these enormous you know, financial engineering schemes they're up to, whether it's your energy bills, whether it's sort of, you know, just you know, your gas flowing to sort of major gas producers, renting, you know, everywhere you look across the British economy, the extent to which privatization of the public realm, the sort of extent to which the interests of asset owners have been placed above those of ordinary people, that means it's just sort of a, it's basically a giant sucking sound you can hear in the British economy of wealth flowing up and out of ordinary people. And the second point, I mean, I think it speaks to the important point about you know, the price cap from Starmer uh, proposal. I think the key thing about sort of price caps and you know, sort of price fixing is that they're really a way of buying time. Um, they're a way of sort of, they don't in and of themselves sort of solve the problem, but what they do is they give you space to address the underlying driver of inflation, which in this case is our failure as a society to get off volatile and now extremely expensive fossil fuels and shift to renewable energy production. And again, that is, and I, I don't know, maybe Adrian, you want to sort of uh, pick this up because I'm sort of going on here, but like that is fundamentally rooted in the logics of the for-profit corporation and for-profit energy companies in, in a world in which fossil fuels are much, much more profitable because of their sort of energy profile than renewables, which, you know, it's quite hard to privatize the wind or the sun. And so, you know, that fundamental dynamic has meant we've been too slow in the transition. Uh, and so we need democratic planning and ownership to get around that. But Adrian, I don't know if you want to unpack that a little. Yeah, just a couple of points. I guess the first is that, you know, the the whole justification between or like behind having a privatized sector, whether it's water or energy in the UK, was that, you know, market competition was going to both increase investment, but also decrease prices and, and all these things. But the price cap itself is such a good example of what I think is this admission that, uh, you know, that market really doesn't exist and or work, right? So the price cap we think of as being intended to keep energy prices down, but it was never designed to do that, right? What it was designed to do was to make sure that big suppliers didn't gouge customers who didn't switch in the market because this is a, you know, a market in which people don't really switch. And so it was actually a question of kind of this failure of inter-firm competition and the ability for consumer choice to effectively bring prices down. It was never about controlling the absolute overall kind of price for consumers, which we've seen obviously as the cap has risen and risen and will continue to do so unless there's a major intervention. And the second part of that um, is that, you know, again, this isn't an area that is designed to ever be effective as a market insofar as it is sort of lends itself to natural monopolization. And, you know, when it comes to the energy prices, there is a very clear relationship between the highest profits and firms that are 
vertically integrated. So what I mean by that is, you know, the firms, all of them have been hugely profitable over the past decade and throughout the energy crisis. But the ones with the highest profits are Centrica and SSE. And those are ones that, you know, Centrica owns British Gas, um, but they also own productive assets in the North Sea. So kind of at every point in this energy chain, they're able to sort of ensure that they're reaping profits. And it is just simply not this imagined competitive market that was used to justify the privatization of these assets when this is something that you know should be considered a fundamental right for everyone whether that's water or energy and something that does lend itself naturally to monopolization so there's kind of in my view no real justification for this being in private ownership um and you know water companies again scottish water which is publicly owned has consistently invested far more than you know their private uh peers which was again used as a justification for private ownership and so kind of at every level it sort of uh falls apart in terms of getting that, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is industrial democracy. And there's a book, which I've just forgotten, just coming out this year. There's a, it's a basically a compendium. It's a, a load of series of essays um, written about democratising the workplace, democratising the corporation, all the rest of it. So just interested in your thoughts about, I mean, you know, there's a famous example, of course, in the in the 19, um, seven, the minor plan in, in Sweden, which attempted to democratise the economy and it became quite iconic amongst the left, though it didn't work out for various reasons, which we won't go into now. But what do you think about in terms of how, you know, kind of work, the democratisation, you know, how we get in terms of democratising the corporate structure? Matthew. Uh sorry i'll let you start matt i'll, I'll hop in after <laughs> um yeah so i mean i guess we sort of end the book with a kind of sort of three-part like argument which is one democratize production two decommodify provision of life's essentials so that take out of market relations provide almost free at the point of use where where possible you know, like what water housing electricity etc 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 and then expand the commons so sort of you know non-property-based logics sort of you know democratic stewardship of shared assets so that might be land it might be data it might be natural resources so then to turn back to sort of you know in, in the book we've got sort of a variant of a sort of Meidner plan which yeah as you say is very specific to sweden's you know political economy at the time but obviously that impulse of the steady you know socialization of ownership the economic you know interests within uh, the corporation but also sort of the control of the direction of corporate life by the workers also and others of you know the people who live under its rule is inspiring so we have sort of a variant of that and so yeah i think it's a you know i think that has to be absolutely when we talk about sort of the embryonic potential of the corporation you know that will be stillborn unless we take you know you know, build a politics which can build the power to wrestle from the command of, you know, sort of capital, whether it's, you know, this sort of asset management sort of, uh, sort of structural power that Adrian was referencing, whether it's sort of the financial flows and who's privileged in it. But if we can, you know, get that power together, I think there are tools around, you know, transforming uh, ownership, around sort of, um, sort of democratic governance. But I mean, it really is, I mean, it's just, you know, I think people intuitively get this. And I think the reaction to, the strikes this summer and enough is enough etc speaks to that but i think people intuitively get that it's, it's kind of crazy that it's sort of you know we have like political democracy with elections etc etc you know quite limited and as a lot you could do to democratize the british state but let's say you've got political democracy but most people you know i just think intuitively get that it just seems bizarre that once they cross the threshold into sort of work um you know you've got no rights you've got no you know you live under sort of you know autocracy autocracy has, yeah, yeah. yeah you know no freedom of speech or very little freedom of speech you know sort of you know no say over the sort of 
directive future based on you know who controls investment, you know, stark hierarchies of command, of power, of wealth and resources. And given we, you know, we spend a lot of our waking lives in some of these institutions, mm-hmm. it seems sort of a real gap. Uh, and I think that, that that should be an obvious focus for the left. Hey, Jen. Yeah, I would just add that one of the things that we maybe cheekily kind of propose in the book, but which is a bit of a passion project of mine, is what we uh, briefly call abolish the stock market, um, by which we mean basically, you know, maybe let people trade shares over in the kind of casino that is the stock market. But fundamentally, you know, based on what we've talked about already, there really is no justification for the governance rights and the control over corporations and businesses to be completely monopolized by kind of shareholders and management when shareholders are kind of this like dead weight on the corporation itself. The vast majority of what's happening on stock exchanges, you know, people think of it as you're investing in a company and you're putting money into that company when you buy a share, when in reality, it's broadly just shares trading hands between speculator, speculators and you know other kind of investors rather than really directly contributing anything to sort of the productive process itself. All of that is kind of being done and all that wealth being generated by laborers within the corporation uh, and various areas from which the corporation might extract value freely. And so based on that and based on this kind of total lack of contribution of shareholders, we do kind of argue that those that monopolization of governance rights should be, you know, totally overhauled and kind of eliminated so that, you know, these institutions that, you know, are dominant in terms of production in the global economy can be made democratic. And that's kind of step one. And then, you know, those kind of rights could be redistributed among whether it's workers or kind of other stakeholders to make sure that they serve kind of social uh, needs and ends. And I mean, just to add to that, I think, you know, one more thing about it is that like, you know, we produce you know a, a product, a sort of total sum of wealth in society, and that is of you know grown over time. And yet, property relations and ownership claims are a way of like saying who has exclusive claims on that wealth. And at the moment, we sort of say, well, you know, a lot of that will be done through marketized or ownership mechanisms. So, for example, private ownership of housing is a very big one, obviously, with big political implications. But you know, in particular to Adrian's point about sort of abolishing the stock market. Sort of pensions, private pensions. So I think in some ways that the sort of flip would be, which goes to that decommodification point, would be we want to really see a world of the sort of significant expansion of public pensions, mm-hmm. um, which you you know everyone is guaranteed the, sort of the resources, and then things like adult social care, etc. The resources to live securely and in dignity in old age, and that might sort of shrink the wealth, the private wealth of this country in a way, but it would expand the social wealth, and so it's kind of reimagining value, reimagining wealth, reimagining how we evaluate that by rethinking what should be something that you sort of have access to as dint of being a human being and what should be sort of commanded by the right of property. And so I think thinking about like, do we want it locked up in the stock market or do we want it released into public pensions? You know, there's a whole variety of things, but yeah, a bit more sort of expansively explained in the book. But, you know, that's one of the ideas we explore. Great. Guys, we've covered a lot of ground we've transformed the global economy which is not easy to do but but no i mean it's a absolutely critical book and i mean it would always be timely but it's particularly timely now given the epic social and economic and of course environmental crisis which is uh, all intersecting together pretty grimly at the same time so how we talk about understanding the system which we live under but how we crucially transform it and i think that's what's changed in the last few years the left is often being quite good at being analytical but in a time of 
you know, when the left was much weaker, it was based on critique and now it's far more propositional and that's what this book is feeding into about the kind of society that we build. So is there any final kind of sign off about, well, obviously everyone's got to buy the book Owning the Future, which is now out. So obviously if you're watching or listening, go and buy Owning the Future immediately. But kind of just finally, you know, kind of reasons for hope maybe. I mean, I would, I'd start by another point of saying also, you know, add into the, your basket the value of a whale which is uh you know a truly exceptional book but you know, and she's on me so i can you know go, but it really is um uh oh, so, and, and on hope i mean <laughs> uh, <laughs> i mean it's it, you know it's, it's an american socialist of mike davis kind of you know, it's like oh well you know hope hope well you know people always ask me what gives you hope and it's kind of like well you know yes you know, you can kind of think of hope as a kind of abstract thing, but hope is kind of, you know, seeing people sort of turning up at enough as enough rallies. It's seeing the fact that the, the world around us we have created and there are so many indignities and injustices and, you know, violence in everyday life um, in the way we've created it, but we have the power to transform it. And I think we're facing a social catastrophe, but I think that, you know, creates the impulse to reimagine and push harder and faster and bolder because I think that's, you know, we need to be as radical as, as reality itself um, and, and try and sort of match the moment. Yeah, and I think, as you said, Owen, you know, in the past, maybe the left has been really good at critique and then when moments of crisis happen, whether that's 2008 or other kind of moments, we haven't been ready to kind of seize those crises, to use that phrase, um, with solutions that can actually mm -hmm. kind of immediately and for the long term kind of change the systems that created that crisis and that deep suffering in the first place. Whereas now I do feel like there is this kind of wealth of ideas coming out of these spaces that are kind of up and ready, if you will, and, you know, ready to go and be implemented and that actually speak to not only kind of immediate suffering, whether that's, you know, cost of energy bills, but also kind of long term solutions in terms of questions about, you know, decommodifying all of these things that are foundational to our ability to live and thrive in society um, and doing that for the long term. So I think, you know, in these moments, we suddenly have, I think, far more ideas than maybe we've had in the past that are at least ready to go and that are being kind of picked up by the public imagination. Absolutely. And that is a, also a very good point, which I'm, I'm glad that Matthew's made, which everyone should also buy this brilliant book uh, by Adrian, which is uh, own, uh, sorry, we've talked about owning the future, the value of a way um, with the subtitle on the illusions of green capitalism. So I think it really speaks for itself, but a very highly commended book. So just just spend your time buying books by both of them and just read them for the rest of your life. Do that. Um, but yeah, both of you, honestly, great crucial book uh, both two big crucial books but obviously this book that we've been discussing uh, is really uh, owning the future uh, do go and get a copy and thanks for joining us both of you thanks so much enjoy the festival <laughs> yeah I'll be, i'm at the festival now when i'm talking exactly to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'll be off my face right now anyway cheers <laughs> planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.